Well, come back with me in time. We've done this many times in the book of Hebrews. It's just been three months since the congregation of Israel had their shackles dropped off their wrists and ankles, since they crossed the Red Sea, and today is the day that they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Imagine Moses standing before a congregation of somewhere between two to two and a half million people and saying, thus saith the Lord. He has given me instructions for us. We are to consecrate ourselves. We're to wash our clothes and abstain from sexual contact over the next three days. We are to be ready, ready for what is to come. For the Lord will descend from heaven in a cloud on that peak of Mount Sinai, and He will shroud the mountain, and He will tell us what He wants us to hear. But you must not approach the mountain. We have set up large boundary markers around the mountain. Do not come near it, lest person or animal be stoned or run through. God cannot be approached without specific instructions. He is holy. No one, not one person, is to even touch the edge of the mountain. Only when you hear a long blast of the ram's horn may you then approach. But only Moses is to climb the mountain. And they did this. And on the morning of the third day, indeed, a thick cloud shrouded the entire peak, filled with constant flashes of lightning. The whole mountain began to shake with with nonstop tremors. And you could hear a loud trumpet, though no one could be seen blowing it. No one was there. Everyone was fearful. Would the ground open up? Would they be swallowed? Would they all die? Would they be consumed? They stood and they trembled for the fear within them. The question is, had these first century Hebrew Christians forgotten what Sinai was like? The very old covenant they wanted to go back to, had they forgotten the reality and the fear of judgment? Had the Old Covenant become so legalized, traditionalized, and Judaized that the fear of standing before a holy God had somehow dissipated? Had this book that they read become anemic to them so that they've forgotten what the Old Covenant brought? Oh, certainly there were believers in the congregation that day before Sinai, no doubt, And they were saved as we always have been, faith in God. But their faith is what God would do in hope, in pictures of the Passover lamb, in a future atonement, not just the blood of bulls and goats. They didn't understand how it would work, but they knew that they stood as sinners before a holy God who had earned a paycheck of death. And it was a paycheck that God was going to put on someone else. Otherwise, they would die immediately. To be honest, these first century Christians that 
we're reading about here, they, they had forgotten Sinai. They had forgotten God's holiness. And frankly, they held Zion in contempt. They thought little of the grace of God. That word contempt is, is pregnant with meaning. Oxford defines it as a disregard for something that should be taken into account. We might say it this way. These Hebrew Christians didn't know that they didn't know. And that's the worst of all perceptions, isn't it? To not know that you don't know. Not only are you, you seeing it wrong, though you're confidently seeing it right, but the very thing that you hold to, you hold with sort of a cheapness. The grace of God is minimized, and the holiness, holiness of God is something not to be feared. It's a double whammy of misperception. We say it this way, the emperor has no clothes. You have a congregation of emperors that think they're wearing something and they're naked. It's a ridiculous, arrogant position. And it's one that this preacher attempts to correct. Everything crescendos today in this book. Everything comes to this passage. Afterwards, he's going to seek to land the plane. But this is the crossroads. This is where he puts before this congregation, choose. Not this mountain, Sinai. That one, Zion. You have not come to Sinai, Christian. Don't go back. Today you must choose whom you will follow. Let me spend just a moment recapping where we've been because it helps bring an understanding to today. Chapter 12 uh, builds on this. It starts in verses 1 through 3 with a call to endurance. Run the race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and what? Perfecter of our faith. Which is interesting because this congregation is drifting, drifting, drifting. Yet Jesus is the one that strengthens and perfects us. And so there's this call to endure, to, to cast aside the encumbrance and sin, anything that entangles us. And then after that, this next uh, pericope was a correction of perception in verses 4 through 11. And then it's followed up by another exhortation. This time, not so much on endurance as much as finishing the race. And we are called as a church to what? Lift up the, the drooping arms, I think the ESV says, and strengthen the wobbly knees. The picture was coming alongside someone who is, is giving up, sitting down, falling on the track, who's weary, and lift them up, get them across. That we as a church learned last week, we pursue the weary. To not do so is to value your own comfort. To not do so is to say that I really don't care about that person. But it wasn't just the weary that we were to pursue. It was also the wondering. It was three types of wonders. There was the uncommitted wonder. There was the unforgiving wonder, the root of bitterness. And then there was the immoral wonder. And in each case, whether weary or wondering, the cure for the cancer was the same. Pursuit. Pursuit. We, of all people, have been forgiven. We forgive. Period. 
We of all people have been pursued. We pursue, period. We of all people have been set apart for holiness. We represent Christ well. Help your family get across the finish line. Now, he, he could end there, but he's not done. Again, it's like he said, I'm not finished. And he's going to correct our perception one more time. But what he does is kind of interesting here. He not only corrects our perception, but he's now going to combine it with an exhortation. So he's going back and forth. Correction of perception, exhortation, correcting of perception, exhortation. He brings them together. Look with me at the overall pericope here. It's very interesting. Look at verse 18. There's two things I want you to notice. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a circle blazing fire. All right? Now look down at verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 29. For our God is a what? Consuming fire. They call that a top and a tail. That, that means this, this pericope goes together. This text goes together. Now look back up at verse 18 again. To the blast of a trumpet, verse 19, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Now look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Verse 26. And his voice shook the earth. Then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. So as I approach this text, I know it's bookended with God being described as, as a blazing or a consuming fire. And his words are so heavy, so strong, so authoritative, that even the strongest of men are terrified when they are in His presence, when they understand their estate. So whatever's being said in this text, and we're going to take it in two weeks, it seems to me that we had better listen because now God stands front and center speaking to us in all of His holiness. And perhaps we in the 21st century may need to realize that we don't know that we don't know. Does that make sense? We may not have a grasp of God's holiness, His judgment, and what was done at the cross. So there's a lot here. We're going to try to make it simple here and, and dive right in. Two points. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. The choice is going to be for us as well. We're not going to stand in judgment over these first century Jewish believers. We're going to preach this to our own souls. And after almost 12 complete chapters, the preacher is saying, choose Zion. Not that mountain. Not Sinai. Choose Zion. So let's look at our first point. Mount Sinai. Look at verse 18 again. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. You see that picture there. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who 
heard begged that it no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. It's a picture of them putting their fingers in their ears. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I, I am full of fear and trembling. And see, that jumps out at you if you're a, a Jew. Moses, God's servant, the greatest man in the Old Covenant was fearful of God? Have perhaps we forgotten what Sinai was like? The Israelites beg, no more. Please, stop. Stop, we can't handle it. And it's as if they're screaming out Hebrews 10.31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I mean, you have to remember, these former slaves didn't have so much as the first five books of the Bible to draw upon. They didn't have Scripture memorized. But they knew one thing. They knew they were sinners and God was holy. And if they were in His presence, they would immediately die. It's so interesting how former, illiterate, most likely, slaves seem to know their anthropology and their doctrine of man better than we do. With all of our systematic theology, all of our studies, all of our conferences, these guys seem to understand that by God's very nature, He requires righteousness. You ever thought about it that way? If God is holy, and He is, then He is holy and righteous and all-powerful, then therefore He must judge what is in His presence. Let me explain it this way. I think we all get it that we, even as sinful human beings, if we were to allow a crime to go on in front of us and a victim to be hurt and to do nothing, it would be the height of evil, wouldn't it? Okay? And yet, how much more God, who is perfect, when rebellion is brought into His midst, to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear, He would not be holy. He would not be righteous. No, God's righteousness requires Him to act on that righteousness and judge sin in His presence. I quoted it a couple of months ago, but remember Isaiah had his vision, and he was in the temple, and it was filled with a flowing robe of God, and he was on his throne. Do you remember what he said? He said, Woe is me, I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Implication is, I'm going to die. I saw God. I'm going to die. I have to die because I am a sinner. We saw the same thing with Gideon. He just saw the angel of the Lord. And he cries out in Judges 6, For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I'm going to die. And the Lord said, Do not fear. You will not die. Samson's father, same thing, sees the angel of the Lord, looks at his wife afterwards and says, we're going to die. And yet, none of us think that way, do we? Because God's our co-pilot. He's our buddy, right? We, we, we've, we've lost an understanding of the holiness of God, the depravity of man, the righteousness of God. 
Oh, I think we understand atonement in a sense. I think we understand that Jesus paid for my sins, but I don't think we understand the full breadth that it wasn't just his sacrifice that saves us, okay? It was also his perfect life and that he clothes us in his righteousness. That we live today because God sees us clothed in his righteousness. We are his. An external righteousness, Martin Luther called it. My point is this, is that the Israelites, uneducated as they were, they understood this kind of fear. And as we approach this text, we need to revisit it, marinate in it a little bit, try to understand what they saw and felt, because it was very real to them. It says it was dark and it was gloomy. Have you ever been in a place that is so dark you could feel the darkness? They could feel it. They could feel it. And then add to that the ground shaken beneath you. Seeing flashes of lightning just nonstop in this electrical storm and hearing trumpets and yet no one's there. You feel it? That's fear. Westcott says it this way, the mountain is lost in the fire and smoke. It was, so to speak, no longer a mountain. It becomes a manifestation of terrible majesty, a symbol of the divine presence. And it is in this time and this place that the Ten Commandments are given that the law of God is given. The law that expresses His righteousness. It's a window into the holiness of God, but it is with this window that it becomes a mirror that we can never fulfill the righteous requirements that are required to be in His presence. Let me say that again. With the law of Moses, with specifically the Ten Commandments, we realize we can never fulfill the requirement to be in God's presence. We can never attain perfection. All of us have fallen short, right? It's not one of us that hasn't sinned. And so this law was given for what purpose? Well, Galatians 3.10 tells us, For as many are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Well, that's bad news. But then in verse 24, it says, Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Remember that illustration? It's that giant neon sign pointing to the cross. You can't do it. Go to the cross. Go to the cross. Because what you cannot do, Christ did. Amen? Okay? And even Moses, God's own servant, was terrified. You remember what it was said about Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And yet look what it says there, verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. So these ancient Israelites at Sinai, they clearly understood the depravity of man and the holiness of God. They understood that were God not to save them 
from themselves, from their own sin, they would surely die. Now, with all that heavy theology and that picture, why would you want to go back? Why would you want to go back? Because under the old covenant, there is no solution. There are only pictures of what may come. What they hope to come with great certainty. What God has promised. Why would you want to go back? And yet we do. Just like these first century Christians, we do. If you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress, you know there's a a portion in it that picks up on this scene. Let me read it for you. Kent Hughes reminds us, So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help, but behold, when he has got... I'm going to read it in the old English here. When he was got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high. And also that side that was next by the wayside did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture. So Mr. Legality said, you need to go to Sinai, basically. And he says, the hill's too much. And I was so scared, I didn't know what to do. And the burden seemed heavier. And there came flashes of light and fire out of the hill. And it made Christian afraid that he should be burnt. Therefore, he did sweat and he did quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's advice. And with that, he saw evangelists coming to meet him at the sight of whom he began to blush for shame. Now, if you've read that story, you know what's going on here. You know, Christian is making his way to the celestial city. And he takes worldly advice. No, 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 go back to Sinai. Mr. Legality says, go back to Sinai. And he starts climbing this hill. And he realizes, I can't get there. And his burden becomes heavier. And he sees judgment. And it's the personification that we cannot do unless God does. We cannot get there. Why would you go back to Sinai? And at this point, it's like the preacher is banging his fist on the pulpit saying, you don't know that you don't know. Not that mountain. This one. Look at our second point, Mount Zion. And you see the text just, it just switches. Just takes a different, a different tone. It's like a song switching in the middle of the chorus. And it's as if our gaze looks beyond a storm-covered Sinai with lightning and flashes and thunder. And there's another mountain in the background. And on that mountain, the sun is shining. And it's the mountain of grace. Listen to the preacher fire off these rapid-fire descriptions. Many people believe it was turned into a song or some sort of doxology where they would chant it, but it was, it's a very uplifting, positive, exciting thing. Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, you don't have to know anything about theology, but say, I like the second verse better. First verse is kind of like a funeral dirge. The second one, well, now that's a celebration. And he fires off seven attributes about Mount Zion. Oh, you can go back to Mount Sinai in Arabia and you can touch it. In fact, there's a mountain there archaeologists have found called Jabal al-Laws. And if you look up at the top of it, the peak is black as though it's been burned by consuming fire. He says, but the mountain I'm pointing you to is in the future. It's in the future. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's our salvation. It's the already, but not yet. We're not there yet, but it's coming, but it's sure. It's not a, it's not a hope like a maybe. It's a for sure. Look at some of these characteristics here. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, that should ring a bell there if you've read Revelation. But let me read to you what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. He's also telling these people not to go back. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia that corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So even Paul is using this imagery. And what he's talking about when he talks about Mount uh, Zion is this is our future inheritance. What Christ has done on the cross, you as a Christian being drawn by the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, given the gift of faith and repentance, become a child of the King. This is the mountain you have to look forward to. It's the mountain of grace. Sinai has been fulfilled. Mount Zion is the perfect expression of what has been done. You say, but I'm not there yet. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. It's when we will be glorified. You're like, okay, but I want more. Well, write down, you don't need to turn there, but write down Revelation 21. Let me describe Mount Zion for you. The new Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is, what? Among men. Don't miss that. And he will dwell among them and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and the first things have passed away. Can I get an amen? 
What is that? I want to be on that Mount Zion where God is among men. Not over here where there's boundary markers. Where if you touch them, you will die. God cannot be approached. And over here, God is among us. God is with us. I could stop right there. And you want to go back to Mount Sinai? Why again? You want to be fearful and trembling. I, I kind of like the wiping away every tears part. No longer any mourning or crying or pain or fear. Look at the second characteristic. And to myriads of angels to the general assembly. Well, now that's kind of interesting because we had, we had angels at Sinai. But I don't think those trumpets sounded that great. I think it was kind of a, a judgment tune. Maybe kind of like a, like, maybe kind of like Darth Vader or something. I don't know. What do you think the trumpets sound like on Mount Zion? That's godly New Orleans jazz. I'm promising you it is. It's, it's when the saints go marching in. You know it is. Da, 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 da. It's, you know it's happy. It's exciting. It's celebratory. Look at our third one. And the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, this is very interesting here, the church of the firstborn. Because remember, Christ is given the title of the firstborn, the firstborn of all creation. But then also remember, we are his brothers and sisters. Think about that dwelling among us. What does the firstborn get? The firstborn is the inheritor. He, he gets the inheritance. We, with him, also receive the inheritance. We are with him. We are joint heirs with him. This is the bride of Christ being described here. This is us, fellow believers, in the most amazing church service of all time. We are worshiping together. And our names are enrolled in the book of life. Number four, and to God, the judge of all. Don't miss this here. What's being instructed here? What's being explained? Because it's really easy to say, well, I like this God better, right? And that's heretical. Okay, don't ever say that. It's the same God. It's the same God. And to the God, because how is he described? And, and, and to God, the warm, luff, uh, lovable, fluffy um, guy. Is that what it says? It says, God, the what? The judge. What did we see on Sinai? Say it. The judge. The judge. What's the difference? Well, we're going to answer that in a minute. But it is the same. It is the same. He's not a different God. He's the same one. The difference is that justice has been satisfied at the cross. At the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied, and mercy flowed forth. It is the same God. There is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is an Old Covenant and a New Covenant, and at its very center is the cross, where sin is judged, and what was due for us fell on Him. Number five, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
I think this is the old covenant saints. I think this is that list of the hall of faith of those who lived prior to Christ's coming. Why do I say that? That, that phrase, made perfect, listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they, meaning the Old Testament saints, would not be made perfect. They were those at Sinai who believed in the one true God and believed that God would one day send a Passover lamb and that he would make right what they had made wrong, that someone else would pay the price rather than their death. Number six, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, for there is one God and one mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10.14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And he pierced the veil and he took us with him. Verse 7, uh, number 7, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. I think Romans 8.3 describes this uh, with the most clarity. For what the law, for what Sinai could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So let me ask you a question. You're hearing all these rapid-fire descriptions of Mount Zion, which looks very different than Mount Sinai. How would you describe this? There's a lot of descriptions, but if you had to distill it down to one word, what would you say? Maybe worship? That's what I came up with, but, but then I said, yeah, but I, I think we've watered down worship so much that doesn't even, that doesn't even describe what, what this says here. I mean, sometimes we say, well, worship, that's just me singing in my car. I mean, this is, this is massive here. This is celebratory. This is a mountain of grace. This is festive. It's a, it's a festival. Can we say that? That God is having a festival of celebration and worship? Yes, we can. And yes, it will be like that. And what should our response be now as we look forward to Mount Zion? Look down at verse 28. We're going to cover this next week, but here's a glimpse. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show Gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. He's basically saying this. First of all, you've forgotten what Sinai was like. You've forgotten what Sinai was about. Remember what was going on at Sinai. You have not come to Sinai, not this mountain. You've come to that mountain. You've come to Zion. You have not come to judgment. You have come to grace. And in this mountain of grace is the greatest celebration of all time. It's the very city of God that's brought about by the mediator of God, where the people of God worship together with the angels as God 
dwells among us. Wow. And he's saying, choose wisely, right? Choose wisely. We are to draw near to his throne of grace. No more boundary markers around Zion. No more threats of stoning. No more fear of death. This is a mountaintop celebration. Anyone ever tells you, it's like, well, I got to go someplace where I just, I feel like I have a mountaintop experience. They're like, no, 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 wait. <laughs> you draw near to the throne of grace. You serve now. You, you, you worship with gratitude. It's coming. It's coming. Now, caveat here. I don't think, as I mentioned before, I don't think there's a huge risk as I look around that there's many of you that are going to go back to your old synagogues. Okay? There's a few, maybe. Temptation might be there, but that's just not really us. Most of us are Gentiles, converted Gentiles. But I would say that there's application here that if we are honest with ourselves, there's some perception that needs to be corrected. Is it fair to say that we may not know that we may not know? You say, well, what do you mean by that? I, I understand the cross. I understand forgiveness. I understand grace. I, I don't think we do. I mean, I don't think we do to the depths that this preacher is calling us. Let me explain. Many of us are neither fearful of judgment or excited about grace. Okay? Or maybe switch around. Sonia's over here. Fearful of judgment, excited about grace. Okay? Oh, we say that we're part of Mount Zion, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a mountain man from Mount Zion. That's me. But you know what? We're living on the plain. We don't even touch the edge of the mountain over here. We're still acting like there's boundary markers. Maybe that's lack of commitment. Maybe that's lack of interest. Is grace boring to us? Okay? I mean, I know we got our doctrine right, but, but is grace boring to us? Because what I'm seeing here with regards to worship and celebration is off the charts. That's the way Christians should be. And the flip side of that is that we should also understand that it is off the charts because of the judgment we will not incur. You see? Oh, it's lots of people who can be excited and emotive and, and whatever else, jump up and down about worship, but they don't understand judgment. And then there's lots of people over here that understand judgment. They're not excited about grace. And we're living somewhere on the plains of Ono. Pick a mountain, is what he's saying. Pick a mountain. Don't, don't be lukewarm about this thing. And I think that is a fair criticism. That's a fair application for us. And so if I might just kind of beat this dead horse for a moment, I would like, I'd like to describe what it would look like if we really, really understood the judgment at Sinai and if we really, really appreciated the grace at Zion, then we would get out of the plain in the middle, okay? If we really understood those two things, then I'll go back to it. It would show itself in joyful singing which I think we're doing well at, but I think we can excel still more. Loud, exuberant, smile on our face, looking at one another. Sometimes, you guys need to be okay with this, sometimes I like to turn around and look at you, okay? 
Okay? It's not that I'm looking to see who's singing, but I'm really excited that y'all are singing and I want to look, I want to enjoy it. You know, I want to like look around and see, you know, the, the congregation singing. So don't be weirded out when I do that, all right? But when I do it, smile, sing loudly, sing louder, whatever. It's like, no, but let's do this. Let's do this. Let's, let's do a prelude of what is to come, okay? Secondly, if we really understood the judgment at Sinai and the grace of Zion, we would let nothing impede our ability to minister to the saints. That means being with the saints, fellowshipping with the saints, communing with the saints, uh, doing life together with the saints. We, we just, we'd put it as a priority. Why? Because we're going to do it for eternity. We might as well enjoy it now, right? So make it a priority in your life. Number three, I... I think we would, we would witness more. We would seize every opportunity. And you guys know what I mean here? You know when it's like, I'm talking with someone, oh, I should probably turn this into a gospel-centered conversation. And then you start to get nervous. And you know that if you hesitate long enough, it'll pass, right? <laughs> don't, don't let it pass. I'm talking to this fellow yesterday outside the boy's garage. He stops by. He's from Guatemala. I'm doing my best to talk to him in Spanish. And I just thought, okay, I know if I tell him I'm a pastor, then I got to follow through, right? Same thing is true for you. You tell someone you're a Christian, you got to follow through with the message. And so being able to talk to him, um, had another conversation with someone uh, the other day, um, and he was, he was talking about the blessing of something God had done in his life. Can I tell you an easy way to have a gospel-centered conversation when you don't know what to say? say? Can I thank the Lord with you right now for what He's done in your life? Can I just pray for a minute? I'm, and, and God takes over there. I'm telling you, pray for people. No one, I mean, I say no one, one out of a hundred people will refuse to let you to pray for them. Pray for someone. And then salt your speech with the gospel in your prayer. When I say the gospel, I don't, I don't think you have to go through every God-man-Christ response in every conversation, but you've got to progress down the road. And can we follow up? I think understanding judgment and understanding grace would give us the ability to take advantage of those conversations. Finally, I think if we understood that, we would enjoy today, but I think we'd live for the future. I think we would really have a clear perspective that this is not our home and things would rattle us less, people would become more important than things, and we would pursue anyone and everyone with the good news of Jesus Christ, realizing their souls depend upon it. And so I think we look forward. I'll end with this. I spoke to a very dear friend of mine. I think I mentioned him to you a few months ago discovered that he had pretty serious cancer. He had a very large cancerous tumor in his tricep. And he has gone through months and months of chemo. You know, to the point where they just about, they take you to death's door in order so you might live. And I saw him the other day, he was down to uh, 133 pounds. And just skin and bones, nothing left. He was in such pain. And he was saying, I hope this is the last round so that I might be able to have surgery. Well, I talked to him yesterday. He had surgery last week. They got the tumor out. They did not have to amputate his arm like they thought they were going to. And there was something he said, I've been praying for him. I've been praying for him physically. I've been praying for him spiritually. 
And with a cracking voice, breaking in tears, he said, Do you know what it is like to hear the words, You are cancer free? That's what he said to me. He said, Do you know what it's like? I heard the words today that I'm cancer free. Can I tell you, that is Mount Zion. Okay? It's God telling us by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, you are cancer-free. If that doesn't excite you, you don't know how bad cancer was, and you don't know what it's like to be cancer-free. We have come to a mountain of grace. There is no more fear. There is no more judgment. That's worth singing about. Amen? Let me close and we'll do that. <laughs> 